I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. In the next hour, a writer who was once called a pencil-necked geek by Hunter S. Thompson, an Ethiopian soul band that once played a Star Wars-themed wedding and called themselves C3POPIA, and a feminist cultural critic who writes of the new EPAD Fem Tablet Computer for Women. It's an 8-inch Android-based tablet that comes with apps like Daily Yoga, women's fitness, and shopping list preloaded so as not to bewilder miniature lady brains with complicated downloading procedures and human agency and choice. Also doubles as a maxi pad. It's, it's... beautiful Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. It's Livewire with Jezebel writer Lindy West, author and literary critic David Shields, and music from Tazetta Band on this edition of Livewire. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, filling in for Courtney Hameister. You also have the comedy of Faces for Radio Theater coming to you in just a moment. Also, Scott Poole with the always relevant Reflections by the Pool, And of course we've got music from our house band Led by Mr. Ralph Huntley <laughs> As you may have already noticed I am not Courtney Hameister I am Luke Burbank I'm sort of a last minute fill-in Which is bad news for you guys but kind of great news for me because one of the items on my bucket list is to see an entire theater of people look disappointed simultaneously. <laughs> Just scratch that right off the list. <laughs> pinch hitting can be a little challenging, so I figured I'd turn to the wisdom of the best pinch hitter in the history of Major League Baseball, which it turns out is a guy named William Gates Brown. He played for the Detroit Tigers back in the 1960s and 70s, he was actually doing time for burglary in 1959, and he joined the prison baseball team, and he was so good that the coach of the prison team called the Detroit Tigers, and they got him paroled one year early <laughs> so that he could play baseball. Gates has the record for the most pinch hits ever, but maybe his most famous one came on August 7th, 1968. He wasn't in the starting lineup, and so he ordered a couple of hot dogs. But then the manager of the team, a guy named Mayo Smith. Side note, everyone had way better names back in the olden days. Mayo Smith told him he was pinch hitting. And so he hides the hot dogs in his jersey because he's worried about getting in trouble for eating in the dugout. And he goes up to the plate, and he hits a double that necessitates sliding into second base. <laughs> Head first. And when he stands up, he is, has smashed hot dog, mustard, and ketchup all over his jersey. 
Weirdly, I was about to eat a sloppy Joe right before they tapped me to fill in on Livewire. So, anybody knows a good dry cleaner? Uh, I'd like to get that number after the show. Really, though, the trick to filling in at anything, it would seem, is just kind of faking it until you make it. And I have tons of experience in this department. Uh, I became a father when I was 17 because I felt like it was time. Um, just done the whole junior year thing, sort of ready. Uh, I remember driving in the car with my daughter, Addie, when she was about four years old, uh, and she turned to me and she asked, Daddy, are we the same age? <laughs> and when I was a kid, I think I thought that my parents had sort of a handbook, you know, like an owner's manual or something that they would go read in bed at night, you know, that had like instructions for what to do when... Say, for example, your 10-year-old son racks up thousands of dollars in charges calling a recorded phone sex line because it was summer and he was bored. Of course, there is no such manual, and you're kind of making it up as you go along, and just when you think you're really getting the hang of it, they become teenagers. And here's the thing, okay? Teenagers are emotional Ponzi schemes. They are basically the Bernie Madoffs of love. <laughs> you invest all of this, like, energy and time and worry into them, and you think you're going to get a return. <laughs> and one day they tell you, I made up all the paperwork, okay? <laughs> you're not getting any of this back. But then they get older and they go to college, and one day they send you a text that says, cleaning my dorm room and listening to Wilco, which makes me think of you, and you feel like you could jump up and high-five the sun. So, yeah, I guess it's pretty worth it. Like life, like life, this show is going to have some highs. It's probably going to have some lows, which we will edit out. But it's going to be a fun adventure. We're all improvising our way through this world, and the key seems to be to circle the bases ending up with the minimum amount of hot dog, mustard, and ketchup on our uniforms. All right, your next act, our musical guests. They describe their sound as soulful, nostalgic, and sweaty. But enough about me losing my virginity. Tazetta Band... Melds the golden age of Ethiopian dance music from the 60s and 70s with American music from that same period by people like James Brown and John Coltrane for a jazzy, eight-piece, Ethio-soul sound that you're not going to hear anywhere else. They've shared the stage many times with Ethiopian music legend Mahmoud Ahmed, and tonight they share the stage with us. Please welcome Tazetta Band to Livewire.
everybody. That was, uh, that was amazing, you guys. I just have one question. Um, uh, what part of Ethiopia are you from? Well, <laughs> it's a great question. It's a great question. We don't, we don't look Ethiopian, but I, I, I did see on an OPB special that um, uh, everybody is a little bit Ethiopian. I, so uh, that's kind of where the influence... Who started the band? Who was the first person who said, we need to sort of fuse these two types of music together? And did the other people say, you're crazy? Well, that was Ted, and, I, and, and Ted can tell you how, how oh, he gosh. changed our uh, lives. No, that was, that was just by a strange chance. We just I happened to hear the music uh, on a tape, back like when we actually listened to cassette tapes. And um, I was like, this is great. And uh, it actually had horns, which a lot of music doesn't, and I said, hmm, you know, so I basically asked the guys, and I think it was Tim and Kurt, and it was going to be Ethiopian or an E Street cover band, something like that, there needed to be horns involved, we had to keep ourselves busy, because we all just had kids at the time, and and we kind of needed to get out of the house, and uh, play music, and drink beer, and stuff, so, that's true. Well, congratulations from avoiding your family to thrilling the live wire radio exactly. and in studio audience. To Zeta Band, everybody. Thank you. Okay. Okay, I got an update. All right, McGrath. Okay, we are, we are monitoring where Courtney is tonight. We don't know for sure. She said she's sick, but um, we're getting a lot of tweets, a lot of phone calls. I'm manning the switchboard all night. Last we heard, she was in Thailand. Uh, we're now getting reports that she's sitting with Jack Nicholson at a Lakers game. There is a 40% chance, however, that it's actually Danny Glover. So um, we're going to try to get video evidence and uh, get back as soon as we can. Luke, you're doing a hell of a any, job. Any, um, thank you very much. Any truth to the rumors that are swirling, mostly backstage, that you spent the entire show's budget on a Courtney Tracker 6000? Yeah, the, well, the, the, it was too expensive. We got the 5000 because oh. of public radio. But um, it's hit and miss where okay. it says. All right. Cool. Well, keep, keep on top of it. Okay. Right. That's Sean McGrath. He's our chief Courtney correspondent throughout the program. Memorandum to the public servants of the city of St. Patrick, Ohio, from Mayor Grandy regarding St. Patrick's Day postmortem. 
Hello everyone, Mayor Grandy here, just writing you to give my thanks for your help escaping another St. Patrick's Day here in St. Patrick with some dignity, wisdom, and the same amount of tattoos that we went in with. <laughs> Kudos to Rowena Sniffen and the entire St. Patrick Fire Department for keeping the number of burnt-out, overturned cars to under 100 for the first time in 16 years. A big shout-out to uh, Joan and Ron Lakesmith over at Sleep Chateau for their donation of discontinued mattresses for our Stumble Home program. We estimated that over 300 people staggered down the mattress path from the beer garden to the abandoned mayonnaise factory where 400 mattresses were laid out for them to pass out on. This kept them from driving drunk, or worse, marching through the streets, vomiting and fighting and vomit-fighting through our lovely bedroom community. <clears throat> As has sadly become the custom, I will begin the hiring process for a new deputy mayor... ...as the search continues for our current deputy, Eileen Summersby. After bare-knuckle fighting the bronze statue of city founder Patrick St. Patrick... Eileen was last seen bare-breasted, screaming the lyrics to Leather and Lace while lurching towards the Kentucky border on her husband's riding lawnmower. Uh, interested applicants should drop off resumes at City Hall. Preference will be given to those of the Umpepe Mpilu tribe of the Manakua Mpimbi region of southern Madagascar, who have a natural genetic immunity to all alcohol and booze and drugs. Thank you for your time, Mayor Braden Grandy. That was Andrew Harris. You're listening to Livewire, the radio variety show that knows how to paint with the full palette of sounds and use synesthesia properly in a sentence. See, I just did it. I'm Luke Burbank, standing in for Courtney Hameister, and coming up, humorist Lindy West, author David Shields, poet Scott Poole, and more music from Tazetta Band. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Lindy West is a humorist and cultural critic who first caught the internet's eye with a hilariously scathing review of Sex and the City 2. Sex and the City 1 left so many unanswered questions. It was so scathing that Roger Ebert giddily retweeted it. At the same time, she was working at the Stranger newspaper in Seattle where she collaborated with her co-workers to pen the book, How to Be a Person. She's currently working for Jezebel, writing articles on topics like why the new EPAD femme tablet for women is pretty much the worst thing ever, and why Gwyneth Paltrow keeps writing cookbooks, even though she seems to hate food. <laughs> Here with a story of how her father helped her become a better chemist, please welcome Lindy West to Livewire. if any of you have experienced what it's like to be a shy person, but it's like this. Uh, it, if you were to be in some sort of wish-coming-true 
scenario. Like, if you were to come into contact with a genie or an imp or a sphinx, and it was like, okay, dude, you got me. What's your thing? What's your wish? You'd be like, invisible. I want invisible. Like, you wouldn't even take two seconds to consider flight, even though it's clearly better. Or wishing for more wishes, which is just, like, basic economics. <laughs> the thing would be like, okay, you answered my riddles three. What do you want? Uh, invisible! I want invisible! Um, and not for, like, the pervy reason that most people want invisible, which is because you could creep into the locker room and look at unlimited buns. No, it's because if you were invisible, no one would ever look at or talk to you, which would be amazing. Amazing. So um, I grew up shy, but unfortunately for me, I did not grow up in a shy family. I grew up in a show business family. My grandparents were in radio in the 30s and 40s, and then my dad grew up to be a jazz musician, and not even a regular cool jazz musician with like a beret and sunglasses or whatever. He, I mean, he was cool and he was a really good musician, but he was like a wacky jazz musician. So he would do regular songs and then he would do novelty songs and banter, like kind of like a weird Al Ellington, if you will. <laughs> and um, I think my dad always had some sort of expectation that I would end up being an entertainer as well, like him and his parents. So I was in piano lessons, trombone lessons, clarinet lessons, choir, every single possible thing that could make me, force me to stand on a stage and feel like I wanted to die. And, um, but I was a painfully chi shy child and I hated every second of it. And I, I, you know, I remember when I was on the first day of kindergarten, I had to go to the bathroom, but I was too shy to tell the teacher that I had to go to the bathroom. So I just peed in my chair, just sat there. Because really, if you're trying to uh, deflect attention away from yourself and you don't want people to laugh at you, really what you want to do is just soak yourself in urine. Like if you can make it so that it, it forms like a, a stank puddle under your chair, that would be ideal. Also, I lied, it wasn't kindergarten, it was third grade, which is way too late to be peeing in your own chair. Like, I could do times tables at that point. But I was like, Ugh. So, okay. <laughs> so when I was nine years old, my dad found out that the summer camp I was going to had a talent show. Horrible news for me. My dad decided that at the talent show, I needed to sing one of his novelty songs. <laughs> and <laughs> the song that he picked for me to sing was Tom Lehrer's The Element Song, I don't know if any of you know that song because it doesn't seem like any of you are 100, but it, it's a song that is the entire periodic table of elements set to music. A logical choice for a nine-year-old to learn in one week. But I did it. For him, I did it, and I memorized it, and I sang it. And ever since then... Anytime there was a dinner party or really three or more people in a room at one time, my dad would force me to get up and sing the element song with him. And I hated it every single time because shyness is physical. Like, you feel it in every cell of your body. You don't want to get up and do it. You do not want to do it. But I did it, and I was constantly torn between wanting to make my dad happy and wanting to sort of nestle myself into, like, the soft mud of a riverbank and breathe through a reed and have that be my home. <laughs> so I always, for my whole life, I've always felt like he was a little bit disappointed in me that I wasn't this gregarious entertainer like him and his parents, and even their parents. Like, it goes back really far. <sighs> and then he died. And all of a sudden... It wasn't until after he passed away that I, I noticed that I, I end up on stages like this all the time. And I don't know, whatever he was trying to do, it worked. I'm not invisible anymore. Like, he, he dragged me, kicking and screaming, or uh, silently <laughs> hating the universe, uh, out of my natural habitat, which was mud. <laughs> and um, I'm not invisible anymore. 
And I think of all the times that he embarrassed me by making me sing that song. And now, of course, once someone's gone, all I wish is that he could embarrass me one more time. But he's not here, so I'm going to have to embarrass myself. (laughs) So here we go. Oh my god, you guys. <laughs> okay, ready? Oh god, okay. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, latesium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and acetine, and radium, and golden protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's yttrium, ytterbium, actinium, rubidium, and boron, gadolidium, niobium, iridium, and strontium, and silicon, and silver, and samarium, and bismuth, bromide, lithium, beryllium, and barium. There's holmium and helium and hafnium and erbium and phosphorus and francium and fluorine and terbium and manganese and mercury and molybdenum and magnesium, dysprosium and scandium and cerium and cesium and lead, praseodymium and platinum and plutonium, palladium, promethium, potassium, polonium and tantalum, titanium, technetium, tellurium and cadmium and calcium and chromium and curium. There's sulfur, californium, and fermium, berkelium, and also mendelevium, einsteinium, nobelium, and argon, krypton, neon, radon, xenon, zinc, and rhodium, and chlorine, carbon, cobalt, copper, tungsten, tin, and sodium. These are the only ones of which the news has come to Harvard. And there may be many others, but they haven't been discovered. That was the incomparable Lindy West. You can read her cultural commentary at Jezebel.com. Follow her on Twitter and the like. You're listening to Livewire, the radio show that puts our pants on two legs at a time. Just like everybody. That's right. We jump into them from across the room at a moment's notice. It's like a public radio superpower we have. Check out our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Radio, SoundCloud, and at our website, livewireradio.org. We now go to NPR's Martha Frenston, who brings us a unique story of endurance. Stretching 64,000 kilometers from the Andes Mountains to the Atlantic Ocean, the Amazon River is a force to be reckoned with. To date, only six have traversed its length by boat, but no one had completed the arduous journey on foot until college dropout Carl Millsap from Erie, Pennsylvania, became the first human to walk the length of the Amazon. I'll be honest with you, when I first heard about the Amazon, I thought it was that store on the computer. Uh, Then I read about it, learned no one had ever walked down it, so I was like, that's dumb, I can totally walk that shit. After a staggering 2,300 days, Carl emerged last spring. We asked why a trip that should have taken two years stretched out to over six. Why did it take so long? Well, I quit like ten times. That definitely ate up some time. Like once I almost died when I tried to fight a giant python while drunk. Definitely took some rehab on that. Uh, Then there were all the comas. (laughs) How many comas? A lot of comas. I don't know, a lot. Uh, A bunch of comas. It adds up. To have accomplished such an amazing feat alone, you must have found it very rewarding. No, it's the worst thing I've ever done in my life. Yeah, Yeah, and I went to junior college, so... I'm surprised to hear you say that. Well, there's dudes with no clothes on chucking sticks at you, okay? And it's hot, like the inside of a dead raccoon in July. It's really hot. What did you miss most about home? Everything. I missed a bunch of Harry Potter movies, and apparently Breaking Bad is awesome. And I hear Pizza Hut brought back the Pizone. So. It must have been very lonely out there. How did you cope? Oh, I had my ways. Mostly I made love to hollowed out branches in the mud. Carl Millsap may not seem like the typical adventurer. But his story has blazed all over the globe, and now others are making plans to attempt his feat. But for Carl, his future is less certain. What are your plans now, Carl? Uh, breakfast, probably. I'm, I'm starving. Saw this burrito place by the hotel. Probably going to check that out. I, I meant, what's your next challenge? What's next to accomplish? Pretty much burrito. <laughs> and then probably watch a movie at the hotel. Um, have you seen Borat? 
Because that dude is hilarious. Do you know if we pay for that or does it come complimentary? Well, you know, I might get a taco too at the burrito place. I'm not sure yet. Reporting for NPR, this is Martha Frenston in Brazil. That's Sean McGrath, Andrew Harrison, Trisha Ferguson. David Shields is an author, a teacher, a critic, and a contrarian who's written 14 books, including Reality Hunger, a Manifesto, which was named one of the best books of the year by over 30 publications. The New York Times bestseller, A Thing About Life Is That One Day You'll Be Dead, and Black Planet, Facing Race During an NBA Season. You can also read his writings in the New York Times Magazine, Esquire, McSweeney's, and the Los Angeles Times book review in his latest book, How Literature Saved My Life. He weaves literary criticism, memoir, and musings on life, love, and mortality in a way that will make you want to both read more and live more fully. Please welcome David Shields to Livewire. David Shields, welcome to Livewire. Thank you, Luke. It's great to be here. Now, had I known I was hosting the show today, I would have made a point to read your latest book, How Literature Saved My Life, <laughs> in which you weave literary criticism, memoir, and musings. Are you kidding me, Luke? You have not read my opus? I have looked at the cover of it on Amazon and it looks really good. Well, I've always felt you look good on the website, but I've never heard you on the air. Mm. Well played, Shields. Well played. So, this is a memoir uh, in part, as I understand it, and one of the things I was sort of wondering about uh, in writing this is and. I think about this too, doing a, a daily podcast and radio show. What is the line for you between writing about yourself in a way that you think is, illuminates the world in some way to other people and just staring directly at your own navel and writing about it, you know? Well, that is the $64,000 question that, um, you know, there was a wonderful line of Montaigne who said, every man contains within himself the entire human condition. And when the writer of a book-length essay is doing it really well, the person's experience seems to have some kind of larger metaphorical value. And if it, it doesn't, it just feels like a kind of incredibly tedious navel-gazing. So, you know, those people who like my work think it's wonderfully tedious. No, they... Um, <laughs> you know, that, that, you know, I feel like every art form has its limits and its weaknesses that movies at their worst are mere sensation. Poems at their worst are merely formal. Um, novels at their worst are a kind of carnival barking. Radio at its worst is, you know, the, ho the host doesn't read your book, Luke. <laughs> and and the, memoir, the memoir at its worst is this kind of self-absorbed, me, me, me. But, you know, most books are bad. Most lawyers are bad. Most doctors are bad. You know, most teachers are bad. And so... Doesn't leave much. Most... Ra no, I won't go there. But the point being is that, you know, a lot of, of so-called memoirs um, drown in self. And I think a lot of, of what I call for in my book how literature saved my life, and I try to demonstrate in that book is a kind of new memoir in which the self gets scattered, in which you don't talk about yourself so much as use yourself as a kind of lab rat or lightning rod or theme carrier or host to get at, at much larger questions. So I'm no fan of the kind of self-dwelling memoir but I am interested in using myself, as I have in previous books, to get at questions like race, celebrity, mortality, and, and, and literary art. Uh, you wrote about the uh, Seattle Supersonics in a book, and, uh, which I was a big fan of, and I'm just curious, 
Uh, is it okay for a city like Seattle to get an NBA basketball team if it comes at the cost of a city like Sacramento losing an NBA basketball team? Uh, that is the complicated question, isn't it, in the sense that, you know, Seattle, like Portland, prides itself on its sort of, whatever what you want to call it, goodness, graciousness, niceness. Polar fleece. No, <laughs> you know, it's sort of what, you know, that it's not Philadelphia that boots Santa Claus, you know, on the football field. And yet, of course, you know, I think if, if Sacramento can't embrace the team, then I would be a fan. I mean, that, I'm a total, total hypocrite on this front in the sense that I think taxes should not be used to finance billionaires and millionaires. And yet every day I turn on sports talk radio and say, please, please give me a team to come back to Seattle so that I can write yet another book that will criticize that team for... <laughs> we get material where we can. Uh, one of the things you've also written about is, is that you, growing up, you had difficulty speaking, and for, for you, writing was a way that you could put your thoughts down. What has your journey been with that in terms of talking in front of people, talking to other people, and how has your ability to express yourself through written form kind of played into that? Well, once I was on a Seattle radio station, you probably know Ross Reynolds. Sure. And Ross sort of used this funny and rather brutal metaphor in which he said that you're like the little boy who has just learned to swim and now you want to swim the English Channel or something like that. But basically, I think I wrote a novel called Dead Languages about a boy growing up with a, a really bad stutter, which was based on my own childhood. And I was doing a lot of radio on that particular book tour. So there was something crazy and paradoxical about, you know, a book about a kid growing up with a speech problem who was, you know, doing these various radio shows. And anyway, I, you know, as a kid, I had a really bad stutter. I still have glimmers of it now, but that I've written a lot about it, and in a way it's become the sort of weird muscle for me that I sort of like talking now, as you can tell as I'm blathering on. And, um, you know, basically I'm really fond of this metaphor, which is to me a really powerful one, by the literary critic Edmund Wilson, who talks about the wound and the bow, which is that he thinks that every literary artist has a wound in their childhood. Lindy talked about shyness and how she, in a way, sort of used that to transform herself into this not particularly shy person now. And for me, I really had trouble speaking as a kid. You really couldn't talk. I became a huge fan of various, of various stand-up comedians like Lenny Bruce and Woody Allen and Mort Saul and Richard Pryor. And I basically became obsessed with turning you might say, blocked language into what I hope is beautiful language, you know, from um, stuttering into the written word. And now, that, that, you know, I really, I'm kind of a graphomaniac. You know, as you mentioned, I've written 14 books. I have four books coming out over the next four years. And I'm just very much wedded to the written language as a way to transform stuttering into you know, lovely language of the written word. Uh, did you, through speech therapy, just learn techniques for how to speak more fluidly? Well, do you know who had... I mean, various speech therapy has helped me, you know, being older and getting bored with it, writing a novel, Dead Languages. But do you know who helped? Barack Obama helped me. Not directly. What can he do? <laughs> I mean, seriously... Obama, it's, it was really the health care initiative. No, it was... Um, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, obviously, I'm, you know, I'm 56, and, you know, I've been working on this speech stuff for a while, but um, Obama, as you may know, speaks really slowly. And I feel like, I don't know, in the last sort of six years, I've gained increasing control of my speech, and I've really gone to school 
not only on Obama's drone policy, but on his, his kind of droning speech, you know? <laughs> that he, Obama speaks very slowly and methodically. And I don't know, I kind of got into the rhythm of Obama's speech, and I sort of speak more slowly now than I used to. Before, I would speak terribly fast and have these weird roadrunner stop signs that would come up in my speech. And now I just speak in a rather slightly slow pace. And because of that, I, I want to thank the 44th president. Nationally, our ears have adjusted to that sort of exactly, cadence. Exactly, exactly. You're listening to Live Wire. I'm Luke Burbank in for Courtney Hameister. We've got David Shields here. He's the author of How Literature Saved My Life. One of those four books you're working on is about Salinger. Yes. And a... a is it okay, you are a person who um, teaches writing and uh, you've written many books, so I defer to your judgment on this. Is it okay for me to be that cliche guy who feels like the catcher in the rye changed my life <laughs> at age 16? I would just say join the freaking club, you know? <laughs> um, I mean, it changed everybody's life. I mean, or at least of a certain generation, maybe a certain culture, maybe, you know, really shy middle-class white guys from America... <laughs> From, you know, the book was published, I think, in 51, 52. I should probably know, I think, in 51. And, you know, it just defined a generation. It sold, I forget how many copies, but I know how many copies. But um, anyways, the book is called The Private War of J.D. Salinger. I I once had a job as a very low-level booker on a public radio show in Los Angeles. And um, this one, Salinger was still alive, and I was obsessed with trying to email him, because he was famously reclusive, but I thought, if I could just write the proper email, he might... When was this? Maybe 2000 or something? Yeah, and I, I um, just guessed J.D. Salinger at Hotmail, J.D. Salinger at Yahoo. <laughs> uh-huh. I went through every single possible... I thought it could just be right there staring us in the face, so uh-huh. we don't know it. And what's funny is sometimes when I'm typing into my email, J something, it'll auto-populate my... Uh, my like vestigial attempts uh-huh. at emailing J.D. Salinger. <laughs> David Shields, ladies and gentlemen. His new book is How Literature Saved My Life. You're listening to Live Wire Radio, brought to you in part by Whole Foods Markets, who suspect you might be schwitzing like a schlemiel over the upcoming Passover Seder. People ask me if I'm a Jew. I say, Jewish. <laughs> I ad-libbed that, thank you very much. Not in the script. No need to sweat it, though, folks. Every Whole Foods has a selection of kosher options like organic grape juice, kosher chicken and turkey, whole wheat, and even gluten-free matzo from Yehuda. More information can be found at WholeFoodsMarket.com. And now Livewire presents the auto-corrected film moment. Films made better by our smartphone's auto-correct feature. We now present an auto-corrected Don Corleone in the opening scene from The Godfather. I understand you found parades in America, had a good trade, made a good livin'. The policy, Portland, you, and there were cows of law. And you didn't need a friend in me, but knew you come to me and you say, Don Cornell University. Give me Justine. <laughs> but you don't ask with response. You don't offer me fried shrimp. You don't even thong to call me Godfrey. In steak, you come into my hose on the dry. My daughter is to be Marriott. And you ask me to do Mordor for Monkey. This has been Livewire's 
auto-corrected film moment. We'll be right back. All right, here now with his poetic thoughts on things that save your life, please welcome the author of Hiding from Salesman and the Sliding Glass Door, poet Scott Poole with Reflections by the Pool. One thing literature saved me from. Literature most likely saved my life, but it also most likely saved me from growing a mullet. Mullets were very popular among my school chums, and they easily could have fallen victim to one if Ernest Hemingway had looked more like Steve Perry of Journey. <laughs> it was all the rage to fashion a look as if you had just stuck your head through some luxurious hair curtains, as if just to say, hello, since you rang the doorbell on my life, I'm going to poke my head through this suave curtain in a Jack Nicholson, here's Johnny-esque kind of way, ensconced in a Van Halen cologne cloud, drop a smoke in my mouth's cheek, and greet you warmly. Oh, hello, good friend. I didn't see you standing there. Come on into my life. I was listening to Winger. I just finished discussing cigarettes for five minutes with my friends, then ferrets for ten minutes, and then I drank a considerable amount of Budweiser, and then I discussed all those things again in a lot louder voice. Come on in. I just made a delicious casserole using hamburger helper and weed. <laughs> Who wouldn't want to be part of that fun? The friendly, smiling neighbor front section of the hairdo, always waving you back with its cowlick to the party going on in the back section of the hairdo. But I thought, what would have happened to Hemingway while fly fishing in Spain? Hemingway might have got his hook caught in his mullet during a cast and accidentally ripped out a good chunk of hair, some skin, and part of his cerebellum, severely limiting his basic motor functions, thus causing him to stumble backwards into a trout stream, crack his head on a rock, and while Spanish trout swam over his face, slapping him playfully in the cheeks, he would have drowned before he could write The Sun Also Rises. Then I wouldn't have had read that book in college, would have never found a voice that spoke to me, and probably would have grown a mullet, dropped out of school, gotten a bad job, later to only catch my mullet in a machine lathe and have my face ripped off, cursed to live out my days in a faceless nightmare without kindred literary spirits. So I'm glad that didn't happen. Thanks, literature. I guess I owe you one. Scott Poole with Reflections by the Pool. Okay, uh, when last we checked the Courtney Tracker 5000, reports are surfacing from Branson, Missouri. Courtney is taking the stage as Whoopi Goldberg's understudy in Whoopi's show, I'm Whoopi Goldberg. Uh, it's a one-woman show. I hope that all, I hope all the jokes translate for Courtney. Um, it's going to be really awkward if it doesn't. Anyway, I'm going to do a sketch here in a minute, and then I'll get okay. back to checking the switchboard. But um, apparently she's doing okay. So our, All right. Our keep, your, keep your ear on the ground and your eye on the sparrow. Senior Courtney whereabouts correspondent, Sean McGrath. Thank you. Gentlemen. Thank you.
All right, folks, let's put your hands together once again for Tazetta Band.
the Zeta Band, ladies and gentlemen, on Livewire. All right, that's our show. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Our thanks to our guests, Lindy West, David Shields, and Tazetta Band. Our house band is Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Dave Jorgensen. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the Oregon Cultural Trust, and listeners like you find fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is also produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. Faces for Radio Theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hommeister and performers Andrew Harris and Trisha Ferguson. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse, Scott Poole, and Ben Coleman. Sound effects and direction by Jason Rouse. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom with house sound by Graham Nystrom. Stage management by Mark Bauer. The show theme is written by our house band and Courtney Vondrelli. Photography by Jenny Baker. Livewire was created by Kate Sokolov and Robin Tenenbaum. Filling in for Courtney Hommeister, well, that's me, Luke Burbank. For more information about Livewire, to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.